Thank you for listening to Painted Vessels, Episode 2, an original production based on the novel by Gina Renee Freitag. Produced by Northwest University and AppleCore Soundscapes. Previously on Painted Vessels. Can't let them find us. How do you know they're even following us? Because of this. I didn't know it was in the bag. I didn't know it at the time, but it was already June. And I certainly wouldn't admit it to Ada, but I had no idea where we were. I just knew it was somewhere southeast of where we had started. I spent that entire day stretched out on my stomach, propping myself up on my elbows as I peered at the town below. Ada was next to me. Her head rested in the crook of her arm. She had fallen asleep hours ago. When I glanced at her, I wasn't sure which I felt more. The longing to be as deeply asleep as she was, or the excitement of what the next day would bring. Nervous excitement won out over exhaustion in the end. I knew I wouldn't be able to sleep anytime soon. I was watching that town because I wanted to know if it was a good place to execute my plan. Observing it wasn't particularly thrilling, but the idea of going into those streets was making it hard for me to sit still. Fortunately, we had several things going in our favor, considering our covert needs at the time. I may not have known when it was, but I did notice that the days were getting longer, and the nights were not quite as frigid as they had been. The rainy days were beginning to spread further apart, and the ground didn't stay wet for long. This allowed us to keep low to the ground, so we could watch the comings and goings of that town in relatively dry comfort. Our clothes, which were drab browns and grays, camouflaged us well, and the hill provided a decent vantage point. We could spy on the town without being seen, and the forest was immediately behind us in case we needed to make a hasty retreat. For several days, I had been aware of the fact that we were coming to the end of the big wilderness in which we were hiding. At first, we stumbled upon small farms with fields of young wheat or corn backed up against the edge of the woods. We were able to skirt around them, and then the trees would stretch out before us again, making it possible to continue toward that unknown destination tugging at me. After the farms, small clusters of homes, along with a shop or two, began to appear. These little communities were easy to circumvent, but larger towns soon sprang up making it difficult to move forward without being seen. Sure enough, the landscape had changed. Towns were now the prominent feature, with modest areas of wooded land separating them. I thought it best to travel through these places only at night, so I guided Ada through the streets, aided by the moonlight when the skies were clear, or with a candle on cloud-covered evenings. This mode of travel was slow, however, and I felt anxious about our pace. Whenever we came to the woods again, I would push on and only allow for short rests until we reached the next town. In the bigger towns, we sometimes saw a few staggering figures in the streets. Those men were too intoxicated to care about a couple of kids passing by, but seeing them always made my heart skip. I would hold my breath and pray that Ada and I were mistaken for mischievous boys who had slipped out of our home to uncover the mysteries of the local saloon. At least, that was my intention when I had cut Ada's hair. The first time we had stumbled upon a rolling grain field, I noticed a few land laborers. Fortunately, the workers were too busy eliminating a mole threat to notice us coming out of the break. Upon seeing them, I pulled Ada back into the woods to reassess our next step. That was when I'd suggested we disguise her as a boy. She was already dressed in men's clothing, but we needed to do something about her hair. Without a hat to conceal it, it would have to be cut. Since she wasn't able to brush her hair, she had kept it braided but it was such a tangled mess by that point, I doubted it could ever be unbraided again. 
Short hair would be easier for her to manage, and would help her look less like a girl, which would be safer. Ada agreed, so I used the bowie knife to cut off her braid at the base of her neck. As I sawed away chunks of hair around her face and along the back of her head, her eyes watered and she bit her lower lip. I thought she was upset about losing her hair. I certainly didn't want to see it go. I've always liked her hair. It's long and thick, and it looks soft and wavy when it isn't pulled up. Before our time in the woods, she would sometimes wear it loose and unbraided. I always had to fight the urge to run my fingers through it. I tried once when she was six years old, but she pushed me down and ran away crying when my sticky fingers caught her hair and pulled harder than intended. After a stern scolding from my dad, I decided it was better to leave Ada's hair alone and admire it from afar. As I continued cutting it that day, I soon realized that her tears weren't from vanity. Ouch! The blade tore at Ada's hair more than it cut. I eased up on the knife, but I felt once again like that clumsy boy yanking her pretty curls. Kept apologizing after every wince. Sorry. It's alright, Eli. It doesn't hurt that much, but please don't take too long. And then give me the knife. I get to cut your hair next. She somehow managed to giggle through another wince. Once Ada was properly disguised, I worried less about being close to an increasing population. Even so, I still insisted we travel through the towns only during the dark hours. But as we lay on that hill, I was contemplating going into this one during the light of day, and the reason for my plan was tucked safely away in my pocket. Two towns back, while quietly slipping through its dark streets, I thought I heard someone whisper my name. Eli. The voice had not been produced nor heard by Ada. My heart leapt into my throat, and I was sure its rapid beating would wake every single home around us. I froze. Ada stopped walking and turned toward me with a fear-filled question in her eye. As I gained the courage to look for the source of the sound, I convinced myself it was made by a nocturnal animal skittering about in the dark. Then I saw something metallic glinting in the moonlight. A coin! I picked it up, stuffed it in my pocket, and grabbed Ada's hand. Pulling her into a swift jog, I led her toward the end of the street. There, we slipped between some trees and lost ourselves in the safety of the wooded area behind the last building. Whether it had been an animal, or just my tired mind playing tricks on me, I knew that I had God to thank for the coin in my pocket. If I hadn't stopped in that exact spot, or if the moon hadn't been shining down at that exact angle, I wouldn't have seen it. Those didn't seem like coincidences. And since I had just been pleading that he would help us find food, discovering the coin was an answer to prayer and not just dumb luck. For days before that, I had been noticing that, as the wilderness decreased, so did my ability to trap animals. It would only be a matter of time before our hunger would force us into the open. But after finding that coin, I realized we could buy food honestly instead of having to risk stealing it in our desperation. All we had to do was find a town big enough to ensure the people in it wouldn't pay us much attention. When we came upon that town below the hill, I was convinced we had found the right place. A small, open-air market was located along the street running through its center. The market had six tables of wares set up under stretched oilcloth canopies. From the hilltop, I wasn't able to see what was on those tables, but I hoped one of the merchants would be selling some cheese, or some bread at the very least. My stomach growled as I wondered how much food the coin would buy. A twinge of excitement hinting at a change in our favor danced under that growl, but perhaps it was just the anticipation of tasting something more palatable than squirrel or mouse. 
Nevertheless, I wanted to proceed with caution. I insisted we spend the next day watching the market and all of its customers. I wanted to know how long it stayed open, how busy it was, and what type of people came to the tables. Once I had this information, I was sure that the best time to go was first thing in the morning as the market was opening and before it got too busy. There was a thicket of bushes at the bottom of the hill, just outside the edge of town. From that area, I figured we could safely enter the streets. It was close to the market and would be perfect for gaining quick access to the food we needed. By that point, the shadows had elongated, and the market began to close for the evening. I woke Ada and motioned her back under the cover of the trees where we had made camp. I told her my plan. In the morning, while it was still dark, we would sneak down and wait in the bushes for the sun to rise. When the market opened, we would stroll into town, buy some food, and stroll out again before most people were finished with their morning chores. She agreed that it sounded like a good idea. So, having nothing else to eat but a few rough plants, we decided to go to bed early and get as much rest as possible. But even though we needed energy for the next day, I doubted either of us would get much sleep. Hunger and nerves were not good sleeping tonics. We wrapped ourselves in blankets, and I put my arm around Ada, a habit I had formed to help ward off her nightmares and to keep warm. I closed my eyes and thought about how far off the morning seemed. The next week flew by, and it was soon Thursday, June 21st of that year, 1894, the day the gardeners were scheduled to arrive in East Haven. As promised, my wife Grace and I spent that morning cleaning the vacant house. We asked Isaac and Hannah Weber, who lived on the property next to the old Colebrook house, to help us. <laughs> I still thought of it as the Colebrook house, but that was wrong. I reminded myself it was now the gardener house. But it took a while for that to sound natural in my mind. Marcus, my love, could you please bring in some of the wood for their stove? After I brought in a couple of armfuls, enough to last for a few days, Grace started a fire in the stove's firebox and placed a large pot of stew on the warming surface. While each of us dusted this or wiped down that, the house gradually filled with a scent of beef, vegetables, and herbs. To make the meal complete, Hannah Weber had mixed up a batch of cornbread. It was in the oven, forming a golden, crispy top and emitting its own complimentary aroma throughout the house. I wonder how many other pastors offer this type of hands-on service for their town's new inhabitants. I was enjoying the task, until I smelled the stew, that is. As I stood on a step stool and wiped the tops of the cupboards with a damp rag, the savory aroma from the stove hit my nose and tortured my appetite. I actually considered abandoning my chore while only half done, just to remove myself from the temptation to dive into the stew. Of course. A quick peek under the lid couldn't hurt. As I climbed down from the stool and reached for the lid, I could hear Grace and Hannah visiting while sweeping the floor in the adjacent room. Laughing at myself, I replaced the lid and turned away from the stove. Isaac was somewhere in the house, wiping the tops of window frames. Being taller, we men had been assigned to the top half of the house while the women cleaned the bottom half. We all washed windows, swept away cobwebs, dusted baseboards, wiped counters and basins, and aired out each room. Isaac and I felt quite industrious when we found a few small repairs needing our attention. The house was starting to look and smell quite inviting. There wasn't much left to do. Returning to my final task for the day, I finished wiping the cupboard tops, but my eyes kept drifting back to the stove. The urge to try a quick sampling of Grace's stew 
just to make sure it was warm enough for the weary travelers, was growing stronger by the minute. I kept telling myself that she had probably made extra for us to eat later, so I really should leave theirs alone. Exiting the kitchen, before I could reconsider my dilemma, I thanked the trio for their help. I didn't think the house could be any cleaner. Agreeing with me, the others decided to pack up our supplies and take them outside. The house was tidy, the supper was warmed and ready, it was early afternoon, and the young gardener couple would be arriving at any moment. Grace swept the porch while we waited. Soon we were joined by Evelyn Russell. She marched up the steps of the covered porch, holding her perfectly baked cake. Oh, look, Pastor Duncan, here they come! All five of us turned toward the direction of downtown. Sure enough, a wagon drove up the lane, sparsely loaded with furniture and a few securely packed crates. It pulled to a stop as it came into view of the house. I could just make out a young man and woman sitting on the wagon seat, first looking at our cleaning party and then glancing nervously at each other. I hoped our welcome would not be overwhelming to these newcomers, but if that were the case, it was too late to change our plans. The young man placed a hand on the woman's arm and spoke what I assumed was a reassuring word. The woman nodded, the couple smiled at each other, and the man shook the reins again, easing the wagon back into motion. As it approached, I took in a deep breath and looked at the others, but my eyes drifted to Grace. This is it, my dear. It's time to meet the gardeners. Looking back now, it's hard to believe how young we were when we spent those two months in the woods. I was barely 15, and Eli was only 16. As I stood in that thicket of bushes by the edge of town, trembling at the idea of what we were about to do, I realized how quickly we had been forced to grow up. Eli scanned over me from head to toe, assessing how I looked. To avoid notice, we needed to appear as neat as possible before stepping into the street. He rolled up my sleeves so they wouldn't hang past my fingers. It helped, but my clothes still hung on me. Try tucking in your shirt more, and let me check your arm again. I can wrap the fabric tighter if you need me to. Earlier that morning, Eli had inspected the strips of fabric wrapped around my arm to make sure they hadn't shifted while I slept, but he wanted me to check them again. Yes, the strips still covered my lower arm. To be honest, they were tight enough to make me always aware of them. I wanted to rip them off, but I knew that wasn't a good idea. Instead, I tried to ignore them. They're fine, Eli. Okay. Check mine too. Again, the wrappings were accomplishing their job. Both our left arms were fully concealed. He handed me a jacket, and after I put it on, he ran his hands over my arms to smooth out the crumpled sleeves. Those stubborn wrinkles wouldn't go away, so he finally gave up. You look like a hayseed. Try not to trip on those cuffs. Hush up. You're one to talk. Here, let me help. They'll look better if they don't drag on the ground. As he knelt down and rolled up my pant legs, I pushed him off balance. Boys always look like a mess. At least I match you. I hoped my teasing sounded more lighthearted than I felt. Eli stood and patted down my hair. He pressed his lips together and looked as though he were about to laugh. Ever since he had cut it short, my hair refused to behave. It flipped up in the most unpredictable ways. I knew I looked ridiculous, but most boys were just as rumpled, and looking like a young boy was what I was hoping to accomplish. 
I was to pose as Eli's younger brother, and if asked any questions, I would shyly look at him to answer so my voice wouldn't give us away. Well, I guess we're as ready as we'll ever be. Remember, Ada, stay close to me and be ready to run. If we need to, we'll head back to this bush and then over to those trees. We can lose someone who's chasing us in there. I nodded as I forced myself to smile. My hands were shaking. Eli looked calmer than I felt. He didn't even seem worried. I thought maybe boys knew some secret about looking calm. If so, I hoped I wouldn't attract unwanted attention by not knowing it. Thankfully, I didn't have to lug around our blankets. Eli put the bundle under a bush, covered it with branches, and said we could come back for it later. I did notice, however, that he wasn't willing to leave the canvas bag. He cinched it up tight, put an arm through each strap, and cinched those as well. After securing the pack, he placed his hand on my back and guided me out from behind the tall bush and into the town street. We put our heads down to avoid eye contact with anyone we might pass, and walked toward the end of the road where the market had been. Once on the street, I felt exposed. I didn't like it. When I peered at Eli for encouragement, a haggard expression had settled onto his face. Something was wrong. My heart raced as we continued down the street. I looked around and saw that there was no market. No tables, no oilcloth canopies, and definitely no food. As Eli's gaze darted from shop to shop, he finally looked nervous. I wondered if he would try to enter one of the stores, but the idea of going into one and being trapped behind a closed door brought a hot panic to my stomach, and it spread down to my toes. If we had to run, I wasn't sure my legs could carry me. I kept my eyes locked on him. Hey, you! A gruff voice called out from behind, and as we spun around, I found myself staring into the eyes of a dreadful old man with leathery skin and a stringy mustache. Something about him reminded me of all those men from the rock quarry. He grabbed onto Eli's wrist before we had a chance to run. The man's knuckles turned white as his hand tightened into a vice-like grip. His other hand landed on my shoulder. What are you boys up to? He sneered at me as he ran his cold eyes over my face. Very bad boys, I'd say. You two better come with me. Neither of us said a word. The man lifted Eli's wrist upward, twisting his arm at the shoulder, and Eli grimaced with pain. As the man pulled his arm up, Eli's sleeve pushed back, exposing the edge of the fabric strips. The man looked at the fabric, and then into Eli's eyes. A smile crept across his face as his rough cheek twitched. What happened to you? Amusement danced behind his eyes as he dug his fingers into my shoulder to let me know he hadn't forgotten about me. I burned my eyes. Shut up, boy! The man's voice brought the image of a snarling animal to my mind. He leaned in and breathed hot, stale breath in our faces. As he spoke, greed plucked at the corner of his grin. I know who you are. And I know someone who'd like to see what you have hidden under that bandage. I bet I can guess what he'll find. You two are definitely coming with me. My heart stopped, but before I could blink, Eli lifted his foot and brought his hard boot down on the man's worn-out shoe, crushing the toes within. At the same time, his free hand jabbed straight for the man's throat. The man stumbled back, clutching his neck and gasping for air as shock leapt across his face. 
Eli grabbed my arm, spun me around, and pulled me into a run. We couldn't go back to the woods as we had planned. The man blocked that way. It didn't take him long to shake off Eli's attack and run after us with renewed anger in his wild eyes. Tears threatened my vision as we turned right and ran through an alleyway between two shops. The alley dumped us onto another street, and Eli led me to the left. I lost all sense of direction as he pulled me along. Without Eli, I wouldn't have known where to go or what to do. At the time, I never stopped to think that perhaps he was running just as blindly. Rounding another corner, we saw several horse-drawn carriages resembling tiny houses. They were parked in a neat little row, like a train along the side of the street. I recognized a large, pleasant-looking woman standing next to one of the wagon homes. She was one of the merchants from the market. The woman handed a bag to a man, who then secured it under a canvas tarp that covered the outer storage area of their wagon. The traveling merchants were busy packing up their belongings and didn't notice us sprinting toward them as they prepared for their departure. While the merchants were distracted, Eli and I ran to the closest wagon on the end. A dog was resting on the ground with his head on his paw. His ears perked up as we neared the wagon. I barely had time to wonder if he would bark at us before Eli pulled me up the steps that led to a door. He yanked it open and pushed me inside, climbing in after. As he shut the door and guided me deeper into the dark, I prayed that the man hadn't noticed our hiding place. I tried to catch my breath. We were both breathing too loud. I clutched Eli's arm and squeezed my eyes shut, burying my face into his chest. Suddenly, a deep voice boomed out from beside us. What are you two doing in here? We spun toward the voice with wide eyes. In the dark, I could just make out two silhouettes. Oh no, not again, I thought. We can't be taken again. I held on to Eli tighter. As my eyes adjusted, I noticed that one of the occupants was a woman. She didn't look unkind, only startled by our sudden appearance. A sympathetic smile spread across her face. But the other was a tall, broad-shouldered man with a shaved head and close-trimmed beard. He wore a sleeveless undershirt and a stern expression. His arms were crossed in front of his chest, and he stood with a wide stance, giving him an even larger and more imposing look. His bare skin was covered in dark-lined pictures, and I remember wondering if they told a story. And if so, what type of story would it be? He took a step forward, placing himself between us and the door. We had no way of escaping. You boys have some explaining to do. Start talking. As he glared at us, the dog began to snarl right outside the door. After turning away from Grace, I jogged down the porch steps. Stepping toward the road, I waved at the couple as their wagon approached the house. The young man nodded, he eased the horses to a stop, and jumped to the ground as I walked up to him, followed by the others. Welcome, Mr. Gardner. I held out my hand, and the young man shook it with confidence. He looked sturdy, like a man who knows how to work hard. I hope you don't mind, but David Holden opened the house so we could clean it before your arrival. Thanks. That was thoughtful. David mentioned someone might be doing that. As he spoke, the young man helped his wife down. She smiled easily at our welcoming party. She was small, but did not seem fragile. I introduced myself. I'm Marcus Duncan, 
I'm East Haven's pastor, and this is my wife, Grace. Grace stepped forward and smiled at the young woman. She held out her hand, which was warmly received. Mrs. Garner, I am so glad to meet you. I hope your journey wasn't too taxing. Thank you. It was fine, but I think I'll sleep well tonight. I continued the introductions while everyone shook hands. This is Isaac and Hannah Weber. They live in the house to your left with their son, Noah. He is the cutest three-year-old you'll ever meet. The Webbers smiled at my comment. Evelyn, however, sniffed and pursed her lips. I should have introduced her first. She was, after all, the elder of the group, if only by a few years. And this is Mrs. Evelyn Russell, your neighbor to the right. We- It's wonderful to meet you. We've started a fire in your wood stove. The house will be warm and cozy. We've made some supper, which is heating on your stove top. You will not have to worry about a thing tonight. Here's a cake to enjoy after your meal. It's an old family recipe of mine. As Evelyn handed the cake to Mrs. Gardner, I witnessed a silent exchange between Hannah and my wife. Hannah mouthed, We? And Grace raised her eyebrows, rolling her eyes. When she noticed I was watching, her cheeks reddened and she bit her lower lip. I winked to let her know I understood her frustration. Heedless of anything but her own part in the conversation, Evelyn continued, Come now, Mrs. Gardner. Let us women help you unpack your kitchen crates. The men can bring them into the house, and while we unpack, they can unload your furniture and set it in place. That should... Oh, I see. She must have noticed how little was in the wagon. Well, this will hardly take any time at all. Even so, it will be better to get it done before the day is over. You may wish to put it off in favor of resting after your journey, but trust me, you will be glad tomorrow. And you can be sure that I know how a kitchen ought to be arranged. Listen to me, and I will show you exactly how it must be done. With a decisive nod, Evelyn marched into the gardener's home uninvited. The young Mrs. Gardener turned toward her husband with a silent plea for help, but he only smiled, a glint of laughter flashing in his eyes. She's right. We won't take long. He glanced at the small wagon load, and then turned toward me and Isaac. I appreciate your help, Pastor. This will go even faster now. I saw the hint of a smile touching Mrs. Gardner's mouth as she watched her husband move to the back of the wagon. Turning toward the house, she climbed the porch steps, followed by Grace and Hannah. The three women went inside to await Evelyn's instructions on the proper placement of the dishes. Meanwhile, we men began to unload the crates and carry them into the house. As Isaac grabbed a second load to carry in, he asked Mr. Gardner the question I, myself, was hoping to broach. I hope you and your wife are planning to come to church this Sunday. It would be a great way to meet the town. Most of East Haven will be there. And Pastor Duncan here gives a keen sermon. Do you have a building to meet in? I thought it was an odd question, but I tried to keep my answer from showing it. Um, yeah. Our meetings are held in the church building at the east end of town. It may be small, and we don't have a bell for our steeple, but it works well for us. I must not have hidden my surprise very well. Mr. Gardner shook his head and looked slightly embarrassed. Sorry. Of course you do. We would love to attend. Thank you for the invitation. The young man was correct about unloading the crates. It didn't take long, and soon Isaac was carrying the last one into the house. 
Only the furniture remained. As I unstrapped part of the bed frame, Mr. Gardner removed his jacket and rolled up his shirt sleeves twice. I now understood why David thought he would stir up talk in the town. A windy network of thick black vines inked onto his skin started at his wrists and branched off as they continued to creep under his sleeves. All the stories I'd ever heard of tough, tattooed men, criminals and sailors, flashed through my mind. Stumbling over my words, I pointed at his arms. You have, um, that's, uh, that's some interesting artwork. So those are tattoos? Mr. Gardner let go of the chair he was about to pick up and straightened to a stand. He looked at me, silent for a moment, as if trying to determine the intention behind my comment. Yes, they are. He picked up the chair again and jumped to the ground. After setting it down, he reached for another. I knew my words must have sounded critical, so I abandoned the bed frame for the moment. I handed a third and fourth chair to Mr. Gardner and climbed down from the wagon. I meant... They just caught me by surprise, that's all. I don't often see someone with tattoos. I'll be honest, Mr. Gardner. Most of the folks in East Haven have probably never seen anyone with tattoos, let alone lived side by side with them or gone to church with them. You shouldn't be surprised if people are apprehensive, at least when first meeting you. But I'm confident it won't take long for my parish to remember that people sometimes have, well, interesting lives before they come to know Christ. I'm sure once they get to know you, they'll accept the fact that you have a past, however rough it might have been. I hope you can be patient with them. Mr. Gardner listened as I summed up both him and the townsfolk. He nodded and rolled up his sleeves past his elbows. And some of us, Pastor, have had an interesting life after knowing Christ, but I think you and I may have different ideas about what qualifies as interesting, and what a rough past is. He turned his arms so I could better see his tattoos. The vines did indeed continue to spread along his skin, and on the inside of his left arm, two of the thickest branches twisted together to form a cross. I nodded, acknowledging what the young man had pointed out. I guess I have a few assumptions of my own that I need to consider. I'm sorry I jumped to conclusions. Mr. Gardner chuckled, and I knew my apology was accepted. I'm aware of the conclusions this town will make about me. I've experienced it before. I try not to worry about another man's judgment. My only concern should be God's opinion. And my wife's, of course. Well, I know sailors often use tattoos for identification, but you don't seem like a seaman to me. So, what inspired you? Mr. Gardner leaned against the wagon and crossed his arms in front of his chest. As a pastor, you understand that everyone will experience trials at some point in their life. God's word tells us to expect them. In my 22 years, I've already had my share of difficult times, and I expect I'll have more. We don't always get to understand our troubles, but I hope I never forget that God is in control. These tattoos are a testimony to my darkest trials, and who it was that brought me through them. They also remind me that God has a plan, and he's refining me for his purpose. When he paused, he shook his head and sighed as he glanced at the ground. I placed my hand on his shoulder. I'd like to know your whole story, Mr. Gardner. I think I would enjoy it. His face relaxed, but his eyes remained serious. 
You might hear my story someday, Pastor Duncan, but enjoy is the wrong word. Fair enough. How about I say, then, that I believe I would benefit from it? I can accept that. And please, call me Eli. All right, Eli. Call me Marcus. We shook hands again and sealed our new friendship with a smile. Picking up the chairs, we each took two and carried them into the house. Thank you for listening. In this episode of Painted Vessels, Eli is voiced by Welcome Coffin. Ada is voiced by Belicia Navarro. Marcus Duncan is voiced by Peter Bell. Grace Duncan is voiced by Jessalyn Sine. Evelyn Russell is voiced by Naomi Schultz. Isaac Weber is voiced by London Roberts. Rake is voiced by Josh Westberg. Jed Gardner is voiced by Cooper Miller. Man in Dream is voiced by David Troop. Written by Gina Renee Freitag. Directed by Crystal Helmke. Sound designed by Kate Orr and assisted by Drew Freiling. Production assistance by Lauren Blair, Hilary Nelson, and Tanner Bailey. Dialogue editing by Jonah Terrell. Sound effects editing by Joseph Carruth. Background editing by London Roberts. Mixed and mastered by Applecore Soundscapes. A special thank you to Creatio Center for Technology, Media, and Design.